exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Good morning. It's good to be with you. When I first started losing my hair, I thought, well, no more hat head. And never in a million years did I think of this thing called mask beard. (laughs) It's such a weird world that we live in. Last Sunday, I introduced a six-week sermon series titled Reimagining a Community of Peace. And this morning, we're going to consider a first obstacle to peace, which is consumerism. Now, to be clear, I do not plan to try and make everyone feel bad (laughs) in any way for buying stuff. Uh, That's not the point of this sermon, nor is is it the point of this series. Rather, the point of this series is for us to consider societal and cultural values that hold out hope for a happy, for a good, for a flourishing life, when in reality, some of these values actually decrease happy, good, and flourishing life. And so to begin, consumerism. Uh, Consumerism is a social and economic ordering of life that encourages the acquisition of goods and services. I'll say that again. Consumerism is a social and economic ordering of life that encourages the acquisition of goods and services. And there's usually an additional clause to this definition at the very end, which reads, in ever-increasing amounts. And so, consumerism is a social and economic ordering of life that encourages the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. Now, before talking about the impact that consumerism has on our lives, I'd like to begin by simply observing this basic definition for consumerism. Notice that consumerism has no interest in human well-being, according to the definition. That is to say, consumerism does not exist in order to increase happy, good, and flourishing lives in this world. That is not consumerism's purpose. Its purpose, as I keep saying, is to encourage the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. Now again, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that acquiring goods and services is bad. I need things. You need things. We, we all need things. and We have to buy things. So consumerism is not merely about purchasing something. Rather, consumerism is a way of being and seeing. I, I think we could call it an ecosystem within which we all live. And what I'm trying to do here is to help us rationally consider a system which exists to encourage the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. And so with this definition in our minds, notice that consumerism is not first and foremost about humans. Consumerism is about money being spent to purchase more and more stuff. And then there's that additional clause that I shared, which is real interesting, in ever-increasing amounts. 
You see, consumerism is not interested in whether or not we need more stuff, nor is consumerism interested in whether or not the stuff that we purchase is actually good for our lives, nor is consumerism concerned about whether or not we have the resources to actually buy the stuff that we think we want in ever-increasing amounts. And this is because consumerism is not about human flourishing. Consumerism is about ceaselessly increasing acquisition of goods and services, even if, and I think this is real important, even if the acquisition of goods and services is not good for whoever is acquiring the goods and services. And so here's another way to say it. The acquisition of goods and services could actually be bad, like really bad for a person, but consumerism does not care about people. Because in consumerism, humans are merely cogs in an economic system that insists on ever-increasing purchases. And as much as we all may want to say, well, I have no interest in participating in consumerism. I will just buy what I truly need. Consumerism is very difficult to avoid, isn't it? Perhaps you've heard of the cliche retail therapy. (laughs) Have you heard of that? Feeling down, I'm going to go buy some stuff. It's going to be my retail therapy. And it's actually scientifically a thing. It really is. Science proves that shopping, purchasing, increases dopamine in our brains. More so, David Solzer, professor of neurobiology at Columbia University, explains that a sale increases our dopamine even more. Uh Uh-oh, Black Friday. (laughs) Now, here's an interesting idea for us to consider. In a 2007 study, neuroscientists scanned people's brains as they considered a range of products. And they noted that when the scanning of products occurred, that a region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, also known as the pleasure center, it lit up like crazy. But then catch this. When the study volunteers were given prices, like fixed prices for all of the items that had lit up that pleasure center in their brain, their prefrontal cortex called the insula, which is a part of the brain that processes pain, that part of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. Isn't that fascinating? According to the study, the subjects with the busiest insulas, uh, busiest insulas, the pain processing part of their brain, they were most likely to decide against making the purchase. Now, rather than trying to assess the good or bad of a busy insula, <laughs> I'd like to just point out the physiological torment involved in consumerism. When we see something and consider buying it, our dopamine explodes. When that which we see and want is on sale, our nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center, also explodes. But then we see a price, and there's always a price. That part of our brain that processes pain also lights up. And so, with this neurobiology in mind, because every purchase has a price, it is scientifically accurate to say that consumerism causes our brain to be at odds with itself. Like one part of our brain wants to buy and dopamine kicks in. It's on sale and our pleasure center lights up. But then every purchase has a price and so the pain processing part of our brain kicks in and we find ourselves in a very real existential crisis. To buy or not to buy. Now, this interior war happens when we're considering large purchases like a car. But think about this. This interior mind war also happens over and over and over again. 
when we're skimming an ad or driving down the highway and seeing billboards or when we're scrolling through Amazon.com. And again, to be clear, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. And I'm not saying that shopping or scrolling through a website is inherently wicked. Rather, I'm just wanting us to take in the very real impact that buying, consuming, has on our brains and by association, our bodies. Practically speaking, consumerism has very real human cost. Now, if you're thinking critically, you may say, well, the pain processing part of the brain kicks in when people realize that they don't actually have the money to spend on the thing that they want. And so what's needed is for people to make more money. Uh, more money will result in more happiness. But you see, this is a consumerism fallacy that plays over and over again in our society. A very large and respected 2018 study by Purdue University found that an income between $60,000 and $105,000 results in life satisfaction and emotional well-being. And here's the real interesting thing about the study. It found that people earning more than $105,000 a year either had the same amount of happiness as those who were between 60 and 105, or the higher the income went, the lower a person's happiness diminished, became. Now again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad here. I'm not trying to say that you should get up or down into this section of, of money. That's not the point here. Rather, what I'm trying to point out is that making more money, which could alleviate the pain processing part of our brain when buying, is not proven to increase life satisfaction or emotional well-being. It's a myth. As recent as these studies may be, they're simply telling us the same thing that the old wise but sad king has been telling us in the book of Ecclesiastes for millennia. In Ecclesiastes, the king had an excess of all things. In fact, that's the point that he's trying to make in Ecclesiastes. I went out and pursued pleasure and took more, purchased more, got more, had more, consumed more than maybe any person to ever live before me. And the outcome of his consumerism is cried out with indignation. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes, you see, is an ancient wisdom book that's been saying that consumerism will not bring humankind joy or flourishing. Consumerism will not bring about peace. Because consumerism is not for peace. It's for consuming goods in ever-increasing quantities. And studies show that consumerism tends to lessen peace in our lives, and I think thereby our world. And this brings me to storytelling. Uh, the great historian Yuval Noah Harari has become a prominent figure in our world over the last decade when it comes to the power of story. In fact, one of Harari's key themes, and I would maybe even say his primary theme, is the idea that human society has largely been driven as a species by our capacity to believe in what he calls fictions. Fictions. According to Harari, fictions are those things whose power is derived from their existence in our collective imaginations, whether they be gods or nations or ways of being in the world. And so fictions, a, a better word I think for fictions would be stories. Stories, says Harari, give shape to how we see this world. Now with that in mind, I'd like to share two stories this morning. 
Story number one comes from our first reading in Genesis chapter 27. In the story, two brothers, Esau and Jacob, live in a world in which a father chooses to give the majority of his assets to his firstborn son. And so if you're a secondborn son like Jacob, or a thirdborn son, or a fourthborn son, or say, for example, a daughter, then in this world of story, you are not just out of luck, but you may actually be out of resources when your father passes on. This, you see, is a story of scarcity. And so knowing that scarcity is knocking on his door because his father is dying, Jacob tricks his nearly blind, dying dad into thinking that he's Esau. Now, in this moment, I think we all think, man, Jacob is a crummy guy. What a crummy guy, right? To betray his blind and dying dad by lying to him and saying, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your oldest son, bless me. But, but, but if we just back up and try to have a compassionate gaze at Jacob, Consider the context, the world that he lives within, which is one of vast, vast scarcity. And so knowing that scarcity is knocking on his door and because his father is dying, Jacob tricks his nearly blind dying dad into thinking that he's Esau. His dad then places his hand on Jacob and blesses him. Jacob departs. Esau enters his father's room expecting the firstborn blessing, but his father tells him, I've already given away my blessing. Esau cries out, bless me, me, me also, father. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And his father replied, I've already made Jacob your Lord. I've given him all his brothers as servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, father? Bless me, me also, father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now that is a sad story. It's a sad story because Jacob tricked his dying dad and stole from his older brother what was rightfully his. It's sad because Isaac the father believed that he had no more blessing to pass on to his eldest son Esau. And it's sad because Esau really thought that his dad could no longer lay hands on his head and speak a blessing over his life. And all of this, the trickery and scarcity and sorrow is the result of what Harari calls their fictions. It's just the story within which they live. You see, it's not that Isaac couldn't have changed his mind, and it's not that Isaac couldn't have blessed Esau with a similar blessing or maybe even a better blessing. But you see, this family is so stuck in their fiction which is to say they're stuck in a particular story about life, death, and family inheritance that everyone in this story ends up sad or scared or angry. Now, skipping ahead to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is on the side of a mountain, kind of like Moses on Sinai when he gave Israel the law. And, and that's the point here. Jesus, like Moses, is on the side of a mountain, and he casts a revolutionary fiction, a revolutionary story into the world. And it goes like this. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Therefore, 
Do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember hearing this growing up. And I remember thinking, well, Jesus' words here are just fabulous. I mean, just fabulous. But if I don't end up growing up and getting a job and making some money, I'm going to be naked and hungry. And my parents will only care for me for so long, right? That is a reality. And yet, I just want you to pause for a moment and to consider these two stories and the people that live within these stories side by side. In the first story, which is a story of scarcity, which is the necessary context for consumerism to flourish, two brothers live in a world in which a father chooses to give the majority of his assets to just one person. There's not enough to go around. It all just needs to go to one person. And this story, as we've observed, results in all kinds of sorrow, fear, and even rage. And then in the second story, which is a story of abundance, which is the necessary context for Jesus' community of peace to flourish. Jesus' audience is being invited to rest into a new fiction, a new story in which a father, God, is personally aware of every person's needs and cares about everyone getting what it is that they need. Now, your modern mind must be asking, well, which story is true, right? Which story is true? Is this a scarce world, or is this a world of abundance? What is it? Well, here's the tricky but honest reality. Both stories are true. Both stories are real. For people who live in a fiction of scarcity, well, they know the Isaac, Jacob, and Esau story very, very well. They know what it's like to have so little that they can't be generous. They know what it's like to worry about there not being enough so that manipulating circumstances begins to make sense. They know what it's like to see someone less deserving get more so that rage is right there in the center of their heart. But then you see there's this other fiction this other story about birds being fed and lilies being clothed, almost like a Mary Oliver poem. I think she lived in a world of abundance. You see, this is a story of divine care and benevolence, which Jesus says lessens worry, lessens angst, lessens the need to strive and manipulate to get what we think won't be ours unless we take it. It's an ecology that vast, that's vastly different from an ecology of consumerism. And rather than tying us all up in knots, this story has the power to break us open into being more self-giving human beings. From Mark chapter 14. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You see, the story of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed is about many things, many things. But I think perhaps among those many things is a narrative which is anti-consumerism. That is to say, in this story, we see the climax of a life lived out in a world that trusts in, rests in abundance, which results in incredible generosity and self-giving. Now, rather than beginning to feel bad for our propensity to be takers rather than givers, and rather than beating ourselves up for choosing consuming rather than self-giving, 
What if a helpful first step is to simply wake to the realization that we are bombarded by consumerism's fictions? We're just bombarded by them. I must have that. That will make things better. I want that. I deserve that. That must be mine. And what if a second step could be to pause for a moment to realize that the I want and the I need moments of consumer compulsion are putting our dopamine and pleasure center and pain processing into this intense conflict, which really isn't good for our hearts or souls or lives. And you remember the passage from last week when we talked about Revelation chapter 18? about the, the, the Babylonian empire that's wreaking its havoc upon the earth? What if when Babylon's message of make more, buy more, own more, have more, take more, what if when we hear those messages, we're able to hear another voice inviting, come out of her, my people? Come out of that way of seeing and being that does not result in human flourishing. You see, the way of Jesus invites us into a world of abundance. It does. The way of Jesus welcomes us to a table that is laden with community and care. That's the promise. And for as long as we're unable to break and bleed in order to generously pour out our lives for others, the Christian story declares that Jesus continues to break and bleed in order to generously pour out his life for us. And I deeply believe this is one reason that we continually meet again and again and again and rehearse this sacred story and gather at this common table so that we can be shaped by this story of God's benevolent goodness in our lives and in this world. And so sharing in this story and feasting at this table, we truly believe that over time, not always, but eventually, maybe even more often than not, we as a people might come to embody Jesus' self-giving in this world. And I'm guessing that you wouldn't be surprised to hear that social relationships, belonging, connection, and listen to this, even generous giving are being proven in many studies today to be factors that contribute to a person's happiness rather than to a person's ongoing and maybe even increasing sorrow and angst. May our sacred story, common table, and life together nurture a community free from the worry and angst of a world called consumerism. And may our sacred story, common table, and life together nurture a community of peace that embodies God's generous love. And let us pray. God, diminish our fears and articulate our stories and expand our heart's capacity to trust deeply in your kindness and care. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.